The people of God have found themselves both on the margins of society and holding the reins of political and cultural power. In both circumstances, they had to figure out what it looks like to trust God. As Egyptian slaves, God's people suffered under the rule of a powerful king. Now free and in their own land, Israel requested a powerful king of their own. Under King David's rule, the nation's influence reached an all-time high. Even in captivity, God still used his people to influence those in power. The church, however, began in an upper room, far removed from seats of power. And it would find its greatest growth through the slaves and the lower classes of the Roman Empire. But in 313 AD, Caesar himself declared the empire a Christian state, bringing a new era of power and prominence, as well as compromise and corruption. This leaves us with two ways of looking at the church's influence over culture, an aversion to power and all of its temptations, or attempts to use cultural and political power to effect real change. In light of decisions already made for us and those we'll make in the future, how do we move forward? Good morning, everybody, and uh, we are in the kind of getting towards the end of this series. Uh, we have already talked about kind of how we got here and spent some time doing that. We've, we've talked about the need for us to be grounded in Jesus Christ and particularly his word. We've also talked about that we can't retreat. We must engage, that God is calling us and he's putting us in some very specific places in order to use us for his purposes. And today, what I want to kind of surround this with is that no matter what, there needs to be a growing understanding about who God is and the fact that he can be trusted. Now, trust is one of those very complicated subjects, and so I want to begin by having an honest conversation with you about what it actually means to trust God. Because if I say to you, do you trust God, the majority of people just quickly say, yes, young lady in my office dealing with just normal fear type issues, and I ask her this question, don't you trust God? with your life? Don't you trust God with those greatest fears that you might have? And she quickly said to me, well, of course I do. And I said, no, wait, honestly, like, do you really trust him? And in that moment of honesty, she said, I, I guess maybe I don't. And then she said, and this is, the, this is kind of that million dollar question, I, I guess it's not that I don't trust that maybe he's doing something. I just don't know if he's going to do exactly what I want him to do. Isn't that a good point? I remember 12 years ago um, when Andrea and I first moved here with the boys, um, this church was going through a pretty difficult time. And I remember talking to a young lady. Um, it wasn't a planned conversation. I was at McAllister's. She happened to be at McAllister's. I'm on my way out. And so when, when I'm walking out of a restaurant, it's usually a great time to just, hey, real quick, I just want to ask you a profound question that you've had no time to think about. And on the way out, she said, hey, Jim, I just got one quick question for you. What is that? And she said, how do you learn to trust again when you've been hurt? When it seems like the trust has been spent and maybe the trust, it's not wise to trust there. How, how, do, you, how do you trust again? And so I had all of like three seconds to think of something. 
and I just remember as I was walking through this, and my, I remember my first thought being like people like Abraham in the Bible, not Lincoln, but Abraham, right? And I remember thinking to myself, the, the only way, I think the only way, I've thought about it a lot since then, I haven't even changed my, my response. My response is now, the only way I know how to trust is by trusting. But that leaves us open, it leaves us vulnerable, it leaves us uh, in this precarious situation, we're like, but what if we're wrong? Well, I mean, you, you have an option, you have an opportunity actually, uh, to either trust and find out that God or whoever, what relationship you're in, that whether or not they can or cannot be trusted. But obviously, if we're talking about God, can he be trusted? Maybe, maybe it's not the, maybe the biggest question I, couldn't ask, I don't need to ask you today is, is, do you trust God? But maybe can God be trusted? Now, when we, when, we, when we look at this idea of trust, obviously, it hopefully is going to kind of come alongside and kind of hold all of this together, right? Because when we say we need to be grounded in Jesus, we need to be grounded in the Word of God, it kind of presumes, doesn't it, that that's not a waste of time, that in fact, he can be trusted. And when I say, listen, we need to be engaged in culture. We can't just retreat. We can't just attack. We've got to be very intentionally led by the Holy Spirit. We need to be engaged. And, and that kind of presupposes, doesn't it, that this engagement is under the control and under the direction and the support and the empowerment of, of God and the Holy Spirit. So, so how does this all, you know, start? And, and, I, and I just want to just give us kind of this, this walk through the art of trusting. And I believe it begins as followers of Jesus Christ. It begins by trusting that God is right. Like, do we trust that God is right? We've sung a number of songs this morning. And I just was, as, I, as I'm singing these words, I'm thinking, um, wow, how, how deeply do I believe this? When I'm reading the scripture, how, how, how deeply do I actually trust, do I believe that this is right, that the blood of Jesus took care of my sin problem with God? I think a lot of the reasons why some people don't have a need, don't even, don't even know to have a need to follow Jesus Christ or repent of their sins is that they just don't know if there's a problem. Like, why, why, why do I need communion? I don't even know, what is the problem again? Tell me the problem. I just, I don't, I don't recognize that I'm at war with the creator of the universe. I don't even know that. Well, God's word says that all of us were. That by our own nature, we are objects of God's wrath and in need of a savior, whether we understand that or not. And, and to be a Christian at some level is to just admit that God is right and that I am wrong. The art of that is called repentance, that God is right and that I am wrong. And it really does, this, this, this art of trusting begins by us trusting that God is in fact right with his description of himself, with his description of the word, with his expectation on our lives. Do you believe that God is in fact right? And when culture changes, when culture shifts, when down becomes up and up becomes down or it's just all sideways, then all of a sudden we need someone that we can trust has the right answers to life's most pressing questions. And what I want to do to take a look at this is I want to look at a kind of a very interesting character in the Bible. We're not going to be reading big sections from his life, but I do want you to know where they're found. 
in 1 Samuel, which is the book that I'm going to be talking about here for the next few moments, in 1 Samuel, which describes that kind of early part of Israel's history, that engagement with, with the kings and their ruling over God's people, in 1 Samuel 8, the people say to God, we want a king. We, we, we trust that a king will be able to lead us. Uh, we want a king like the other nations because we just don't trust people rising up. We really don't trust you sending your spirit to send judges occasionally. We want something more concrete. It's kind of like the little kid that says, you know, I really want mommy, I want you to be in here. And she said, but don't you trust that God is with you? She said, yeah, but right now I need somebody with skin on. I get that. Like, I get that. I, I'm that kid. Right now, I need someone with skin on. That, that is where we, we really, it comes to, to, comes to, like, is it true or not that we trust? And, and they said, listen, we need a king with skin on, not just God providing his spirit. We want that kind of king, and God gave them a warning, and then God found a, a very capable candidate in Saul. And, and he had all the, all, all the things that were needed and, and God gave him victory over many of his enemies. And when you look at the beginning of this prophet or this king's life, he's doing some amazing things and providing peace and security and prosperity for the nation. But in everyone's life, there comes those moments where now all of a sudden, do I believe that what God has said is right or with swirling circumstances changing, do I need to start thinking for myself? Do I need to start taking action for myself? This is uh, one of the most difficult questions that we, that we wrestle with. How much do I trust God and how much do I just be a responsible citizen, a responsible follower of Jesus Christ? 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul is um, getting ready for battle against uh, the Philistines and he has had victories over them but right now the, the kind of the lining up of the battle doesn't look good. Now what they would do is they would have like a sacrifice before the battle and that wasn't done by the king, that was actually done by a prophet or uh, by a leader and at that time it was a guy named Samuel who anointed Saul as king. And it was kind of a rule. Not everybody gets to do this. And see, this is what kings do, right? Kings just think they know better than everybody else. Kings just think they can do whatever they want. After all, look, I got the crown. Like, I'm the one that's in charge. I'm the one, and, and that just goes to their heads. So in this really critical moment when Israel is finding themselves, the army of Israel is finding themselves, getting ready to go into battle, and the prophet Samuel says, listen, I'll be there in seven days. And seven days come and go, and now it looks like, okay, we, we need another plan here. Samuel is late, and Saul says, well then, why don't I just do the sacrifice? Why don't I just take care of this? And his men start getting kind of freaked out, and some of them begin to leave. And so now, this is le good leadership, just knows when to act, right? That's good leadership. And so King Saul decides I'm going to offer up the sacrifice in, in typical 1 Samuel fashion. As Saul is finishing up the sacrifice, who enters? Samuel. Hey Saul, what are you doing? I, I just, okay, let me explain. He actually says, I had to force myself to do this. 
Like I just couldn't take it anymore. It was like culture was pushing on me and my own fears were taking over. And I knew what you said and I knew what God wanted, but circumstances around me were so crazy. It was like something, everybody else knows what this is like. It's like something took over my body and I just had to do it. Like people were leaving, like people were scattering. And at that moment, and you're not here, and God's not saying anything, can't I do whatever I want? That just seems to make sense. And you know what Samuel says to Saul? Listen, you could have had a kingdom that would have lasted forever, but because you have done this, done what? All I did, slow down everybody, all I did was offer up a sacrifice. No, what you did was you presumed that what God said was not right and the expediency of your moment was. And you chose to not trust God in that moment. That is, this is where we find the statement. And now God will find someone who seeks after his own heart. And you will not have a kingdom that will last forever. Two chapters later. There's another one of these encounters, another one of these opportunities. It's interesting how uh, these opportunities come like this to kings. And, and there he is. He's been given now some new instructions. There are these wicked people known as Amalekites. And God says, listen, I am judging them for their sins, which have reached me. And so in the past, God has allowed the army of Israel to take spoils from the, the battles that they had as they were uh, providing conquests throughout the land of Canaan. But God said, for this group of people, I want no one left alive and I want no animals left alive and I want you to not take any of their silver or any of their gold. It is all doomed for destruction. Which by the way, really causes a lot of struggle and difficulty on a modern Christian's um, uh, sense of, of, of just what is right and wrong which I find it interesting, trusting that God is right and here's what he did and now we've got all these new opinions about it. But bigger picture, when we're looking at Saul in the middle of this moment, he goes and he provides victory and then, hey, here's what happens. Common sense just stepped in. And they're looking at all of this wealth and they're looking at all of these sheep and they're looking at all of this and there's the king and I know God told me to kill him and it's not like Saul's got this, you know, I just can't do it because I love people issue. It's, no, I like to hold on to kings that I've proved myself victorious over. I like to parade them around. Look who I've got. I've got the king of the Amalekites. It's not some kind of a humanitarian problem for him. But he takes the Amalekite king and he takes these, and he's got a spiritual plan for him. I'm gonna offer up these animals to God, the ones that he told me to kill, but I'm not gonna listen to him because I got a better plan for him. And I'm gonna keep this wealth and I'm going to, and, and who enters again? Samuel. And he hears this, this, the sheep. And, and Samuel's just like, what have you done? And, and just like that teenager that's been caught, right? Some of you are going, you're thinking of your kids. Others are just thinking of like last week, right? When it was you. So there you are and you're, well, let me explain how this happened. Let me explain how I got into this situation because I know you're mad and I know that I won't be going to school for the next few days, but let me explain to you, mom and dad, what happened. Because I, I think everybody's just overreacting here and, and Saul in this moment begins to explain why it just made sense to do these things and rebel against God. 
They just, they didn't trust that when God said, here's what I want you to do, that he meant it. They didn't trust that God was right in making that judgment. What they did was they took what God said and then they just added their own little tweaks here and there and they just used, this is the dangerous part of what we would consider just to be common sense. I can't tell you how many times in the Bible when people are getting in trouble, it scares me because I'm going, but I would have done that because I thought that was a good idea. Hence the need for prophets and for God himself to come in and to speak. Because without his voice to us, how would we know? One of the greatest gifts of God's grace is the truth that he tells us about himself, about ourselves, about our culture. And we fail to recognize just how important it is that in order to trust God, it begins by trusting that he is right. And so Samuel says to him, Saul, like, not, not only will you not have a kingdom that will last forever, but, but, but this kingdom right here, like your life, it's over. Like it's done. Like your kingdom is not, you're not going to see uh, the end of your life kind of dying and it being like, uh, well, wasn't that sad? No, no, no. Like it's taken away from you. That's 1 Samuel 15. 1 Samuel 16, God anoints David, king of Israel. Why? Because the primary problem with Saul because you might, and by the way, we can both sit here and go, seriously, I think God's overreacting on this. All he did was offer up a sacrifice and all he did was like spare some goats and some sheets and some gold and some kings. I mean, that's all he did, really? Like that's such a bad thing? And the answer is, God said that was a really bad thing. And you and I have to ask, so do I get in line with what God says? Or do I, do I continue down the same road that the King Saul used, which is just good common sense you know I got a couple of really smart friends and I talked to them about it and all three of us agreed that God was wrong yeah you, you, you can keep adding to that number you, you, three, ten a million it begins by trusting that God is in fact right. Last week, and I had some fun conversations with a few people um, that were still trying to figure out how 1 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, how that's been misused. Well, let me, let me give you another one for today uh, to kind of spark some conversations. I want you to turn in your Bibles. I want you to look at this one. This is this idea of trusting that God is right, but it's not just um, that adultery is wrong or that abortion is sin. or It's not just like that. Sometimes it's, like, it's much more nuanced, much more nuanced. Jeremiah chapter 29. You know this verse. You put it in your yearbook. The ones who are most spiritual. Jeremiah chapter 29 verses 10 and 11. Now, here, here's, here's all I'm saying when I look at these verses and I get concerned that we're ripping them out of context, is that in the end, we, we are just taking Bible verses and we're using them to try to make us, ourselves feel better about a plan that we want to be true about ourselves instead of God's true word to us. See, there's a difference between believing God's going to make our lives right and better and good and trusting that no matter, no matter what's going on in my life, that God is right. That no matter what's happening, God is right. He's right in this. He's right in what he has said. Whether I get it or not, whether you get it or not, whether we get it or not, 
God is in fact right on this. It's not just about laws. In Jeremiah 29, this is why the context matters. In Jeremiah 29, God's people are being judged for hundreds of years of rebellion. Hundreds of years of rebellion against him. And God finally says, I'm going to take you. I'm going to destroy the land. I'm going to destroy this temple that you think that is somehow your saving grace. But in the end, the temple's not going to save you either. You've rebelled against me. Another army is going to come in and they're going to take you off as slaves. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to to humble yourselves and you're going to go off as slaves and I want you to stay there and kind of like to an entire nation, I want you to stay there and think about what you've done. Kind of like the parent sending the kid to the room. I want you to go to your room and I want you to think about what you've done. Have you you been here? I remember going, oh, that's all I gotta do is think about what I've done. Like I'm ready, but before I, I just walk in my room, walk out of my room, I have so thought about what I've done. I've got it all figured out, Dad, you're right. You're right, I'm wrong. Can we go on with this? My dad would say to me, you haven't thought about it long enough. What do you mean I haven't thought about it? I've walked all the way in and all the way out. What do you mean I haven't thought about it? Anybody had parents that would make them, you need to go for a long time. Like, five minutes? No, a long time. God is trying to help his people realize this is a punishment and you will stay there. And by the way, he says through his prophets, you'll stay there for 70 years. And, and by the way, that's never like an exciting prophecy to give. Hey, by the way, we're gonna be in exile for 70 years. Can we get another prophet in here, please? I don't, I don't like the 70 number. Can we get it down to 20? And then we can negotiate this. And what the people of God were wrestling with, what they were struggling with, was I don't want this punishment. I don't think that God is right in dealing out this punishment. And so God speaks to them through the prophet Jeremiah. That's where this verse is gonna come from, by the way. Is I need you to accept my punishment for you as a nation for your sin That's what Jeremiah 29 is all about. Look at this verse, beginning in verse 10. For thus saith the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. After 70 years, I will do this. Until that time, I want you to settle down. I want you to get jobs. I want you to get married because they were just, I'm not doing this. I am just mad that I'm here and I refuse to. He actually tells the Israelite people, like, I want you to pray for the city. I want you to, I I need you to humble. You wouldn't humble yourselves here, so I took you there. And now you're still a spoiled kid yelling and screaming, I want out of my room, I want out of my room, I've learned my lesson. And that's when God says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And and we love that verse, and I know why we love that verse, because my life, I only see it as bigger and better. When I look at my life, all I see is just greater marital success and family success and, and health. That's all I ever see. Like, it's got to get better, right? Like, it's not going downhill. Why would God ever want anything to go downhill? And so I'm telling you, like, this is why this church should begin to grow. I promise that things will just get better and better and better. And God says, no, listen, you're missing the point. 
It's not that we know the plans that we want and how do we make God bring us those plans. It's I know the plans that I have for you. And by the way, for the next 70 years, what I want you to do is I want you to submit to me and I want you to get married and I want you to, 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 to bless that place by being my people there. Now, let's just be honest. There was probably a 47-year-old, probably not from Canada, but a 47-year-old in Babylon at the time. Right? And he probably went like this. 47 plus 70. Are you serious? Yep. Like, think about it. So when do I get to go home? Well, how old are you? 50? Looks like you're not. Truthfully, right? I guess I'm not. I guess I'm not going home. That's not fair. Like, what about the, you know the plans for me, and it's just going to be awesome for me. No, it's I know the plans for you. And sometimes these plans look like this. And see, it's in those moments when culture is kicking us in the teeth. When it's hard and our only response is like just feeling sick to our stomachs. Just being concerned about the way things are going. And it's in those moments, not just after victory, but in the midst of what looks like you and to me, like defeat. But God is still right. How many years left, sweetheart? 55. Wow, it's only been 15 years. Hmm. Okay. Back to being his agents, his bearing witness of his goodness to the world in a nation that doesn't even want to get along with us. Yep. Trusting that God is right, which then requires for us to trust that God is in control. See, this is why it's so important. One of the reasons why we don't get grounded in Jesus and the word is because it feels like that everything's out of control. So we want to give in to cultural trends. And one of the reasons why we don't want to engage is because in the end, I don't think that God is in control. So the only thing I know how to do is to build a moat and a wall and retreat. And we'll just kind of um, just be mad and to try to be countercultural by being just different. And, and in the end, we just... We'll trust that at least we're in control. In the end, in the end. Okay, actually, I get in the end thing. But until the end, I am going to do my best to kind of protect my family and everything else. But no, we are going to trust that God is in fact in control. Now again, listen, I know that many of you are thinking like in your life and this is what's going on with my family and these are our financial situations and is in God in control and, and these are our health problems that we're going through and, and this is my job situation that I'm dealing with and here's my marital problems that I'm going with and my kids are crazy and yes, I know, kids are crazy. That's how it works. When all of these things are swirling around us, what do we do? How do we handle this? And we handle all of this from our specific circumstances to it just seems like the Supreme Court is doing this. It seems like our government is doing this. It seems like other people's governments are doing that. Do we let all of the craziness of the world cause us to doubt or to disbelieve straight up that God is the one in control of all of these things? It just, I don't know about you, but whenever like something good happens, people love to go, oh, God is good. Like God is so in control of this. I'm so grateful that God's got this. 
I, I just very seldom hear that like after a catastrophe, right? I've been in those situations where I'm right there when the family is hearing some pretty difficult news and I usually don't hear that. Man, God is good. Man, God is in control, isn't it? Funeral's Tuesday. No, it's, and hear me, it's not like we don't talk about God. It's, well, God is gonna comfort us, but is God any less in control when it seems like the world is out of control? I want to look at a passage of scripture that I find to be very reassuring and comforting and interesting. Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50 verses 19 and 20. Um, it's the story of Joseph and his brothers. And uh, if you don't know that story, at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph, who would be Abraham's great-grandson, okay? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob has a son named Joseph. There's 12 of them, Joseph and his brothers, and 10 of them gang up against Joseph, and they sell him into slavery. They sell him into slavery. And so he goes to another land. He, he goes to Egypt, and, and by the time the whole story is done, there's a famine in the land where Joseph's family was living, and all of them come down to Egypt, now, his brothers who've sold him in, you probably know the story, his brothers who've sold him into slavery are now looking at their brother, and their brother is second in charge of the entire land. And they're scared. Is brother going to pay us back for the evil that we planned against him? And so they're just trying to figure out, okay, how do we get on Joseph's good side? Because we had a plan to hurt him. And I love Joseph's response because not only does it help me deal with when others might try to hurt me and how do I respond, but I, I love thinking about this verse in a multitude of ways. Not only personally, but wonder about, like I wonder how far God's, think about this for, with me for a moment, I wonder how far God's control extends. Like where is the limit of his control? Like, like where is the point in human history where God goes, yeah, no, I can't, can't help you there. No, I don't know what's going on there. I got nothing I can do there. Is there ever a point where there, we, we enter into some situation that is happening in our culture or in our society where God is, like you and I, just scared? So Joseph looks at the very difficult circumstances that he went through. And by the way, he's not just thinking about this as an individual, but as a family which is about to become a nation. And here is what Joseph says in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, they're scared to death, Joseph's gonna get them. Joseph says to them, do not fear. Don't be afraid of me. For am I in the place of God? Meaning, hey listen, like if I were to act, I would actually be fighting against God's plan. Like I'm not, I'm not here just trying to do what I wanna do. God's got a plan and I'm not bigger than he is. And notice what he says in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. So you can't hide the fact, yes, the brothers meant bad things against Joseph. But can God use that? And by the way, for those of you that are right now thinking, so I can do bad things and well, let me tell you, yeah, you actually can do bad things. And it does not thwart or stop or change the will of God. We don't talk about that enough. Like God is in complete control of these things. And listen, I know, I know your mind's going in a million directions. Yeah, mine is too sometimes. Just give me another way to understand what's happening here. 
He says, you had evil against me, but God meant it for good. Like God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This, by the way, isn't him just trying to go, wow, isn't it kind of amazing how sometimes bad things become good things? Now, this is him speaking about God's sovereign control. And what Joseph can see, and I believe in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit confirms, is that there are things that are going on around us, individually and corporately, that might look like just brokenness and evil. And that doesn't mean that God isn't in control of it. But do you trust that? Do you trust that? Oh yeah, but like, um, what about Hitler? Well, again, I'll tell you, I don't think God's in heaven going, okay, who let Hitler do this? How did Hitler get here? Oh yeah, Stalin, yep, Mao, yep. Is God still in control? I mean, think of Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, the wicked kings of Israel. Nowhere does the Bible give us any sense that what we see in this picture is God who is helpless in this. That God is completely there. And so as we think about this approaching cultural distance, this this cultural shift, one of the reasons why I take great pleasure and confidence in calling us back to God and calling us back to remember who he is is not just to calm our hearts by me just kind of, let's just close our eyes and just kind of tap our heel or our heels together, right? There's no place like home. (laughs) Anybody want to come back to Calgary with me? There's no place like home. You don't want to come back to Calgary with me. There's no place like home. I'm not talking about wishful thinking. I'm talking about the long line of witnesses that are throughout the scriptures that say even when it seems, hear me, when it seems or when it is apparent that things are going in the wrong direction, God is still in complete control. Another great verse of scripture is found in Daniel chapter four, verse 17. This one will kind of unsettle you a little bit. Um, Because again, I I get it. How much do we need to make sure that we act? How much responsibility do we have? And when are we overstepping our responsibility? That's a a big question. I'm not even gonna try to answer it completely today. I'm just going to tell you anything that begins to doubt whether or not God is right or anything that begins to try to undo the fact that God is in control, I'm not for that. And in the life of Daniel, somebody who knows what it's like to live out of step with his culture, he says this, Daniel 4, verse 17, a good one to underline every time there's an election. You won't hear this one on the, on the news, by the way. I don't think they believe it. I do, though. Daniel 4.17, Daniel loves to, he loves to remind the kings, who, <laughs> I love this in the book of Daniel, they come and go, he doesn't. Okay, who's the king this time? Okay, let me tell you what your dad didn't listen to. Let me tell you one other mistake that your other kings have made is that you guys, when you become kings or when you guys think you're actually having this influence over culture and you're in the right and you're in the know, what you don't understand is that it is God who put you there or it's God who allows you to be there and God is never not in control. 
The Most High is the way Daniel refers to Yahweh often in this book. The Most High rules the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. Yep. God is in complete control. And when kings didn't know that and they thought they could act proud, God humbled King Nebuchadnezzar. And when another king thought he could mock God and just drink from the, 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 the special uh, cups and goblets from the, from the temple in Jerusalem, God kills the king that night. I am the one in charge, Yahweh says. I mean, it's that wonderful and profound statement. God is the one who is over all of this. Do we actually believe that? I remember uh, I came here in 2004. We moved here in the summer of 2004. And so you got that wonderful election year fun. And first time I'd been here and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm from, before we lived here, we lived in Joplin, Missouri, which kind of in terms of the, the climate, the political climate, very similar to Stillwater, Oklahoma. Um, and I remember just kind of seeing a lot of people in that election, the election of 2004, which by the way, was the most important election in U.S. history. At least that's what they were saying in 2004, okay? Then it was 2008, then it was 2012. Now we know for sure that the most important, the most important in election in U.S. history is what? I don't know, probably 1860, but that's another debate to have, okay? But as we're in the middle of this, okay, um, I'm trying to let people know that you have a responsibility that in the end, sure, um, I, I totally believe that every election matters, but then I would try to point out, I just need you to remember that the one who is on the throne is far more important than anyone who is in the office. Like, I can't tell you the, dis, the, the difference or the discrepancy between the one on the throne and the one in the office. And so listen, I, I know we have responsibilities and I know there are things that we need to do and I, I, I appreciate and understand and, and welcome all of that, but let us never lose sight of who is on the throne. It got some amens, right? And then people were going, yeah, but he doesn't know. He's Canadian. What does he know? And so later on the next week, I catch a lady in the children's hall and she comes up, first of all, very understanding. Jim, I want to thank you for that reminder walking closer to me so she can grab me if she needs to. And I, I get it, I understand it. We really do need to trust God and we really do need to believe that he's the one that can do all of these things. And she grabs my arms and proceeds to say, but you don't understand. If he doesn't win, we're all gonna die. Okay, you're proving my point and you're hurting my arms. This, but I get it. I, I get what she's thinking. I've thought that. See, it's, it's not that these things don't matter. I just want to know, like, does it say anything about us? When, whether it's our social media feed or whether it's our conversations at the coffee shop or whether it's our conversations with our own children, when we have that same kind of hysteria, what does it say about us? Like, what kind of witness does it give? when we actually believe that our saving grace comes in the form of a human elected official. Is that what we believe? Like that's not what we believe. We believe that God is in control. 
And what makes this so hard is just admitting the fact that although that we, we, we see how God is right and how God is in control, um, it's his timing that catches us. And it must end up, it must result in a trust that we have, like in God's timing. We want it done now. I don't want to wait 70 years. I've said this before in this series, but I fully believe that I will see a 70 years. I'm not trying to say God told me this, but I don't think I'll ever see a different culture than roughly the one that we have now. Like it seems like cultural trends don't change over five years, but they, they take hundreds of years. And so should the Lord tarry, I'm thinking, yeah, this is about what it's gonna be for the next 20, 30 years that I might have on this life. So I, I need to realize that God has appointed me and I therefore believe then you to live now. Therefore, we need to trust in his sovereign control and even his timing. All of this is coming together for a reason. Exodus chapter one, verse seven tells us this about God's timing. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. This is after Joseph has died. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them, that land being Egypt, not the promised land. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph because 400 years have passed. 400 years have passed. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and they fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. This is what the Israelites had, 400 years of not living in the promised land. Now extreme difficulties and I just want you to think about this for a moment. Like, what could they do? Like, this is what we would do. We need a leader. And we need to start training one now. We'll start with the educational system because we just know how powerful that is. And then we'll send him to a good college. And then he can come back and rescue us. Think about it. That's how we think. We just, our problem is leadership. And our problem is we just need to train the right leaders. And if we train the right leaders, then we can be in control of this. You know, the people of Israel didn't create Moses. God found him. And God sent him. See, it's in his timing that great leaders come. I'm not saying we don't have a responsibility to teach our children to be faithful followers of God, but in the end, we can't control Moses' coming up and out of, in and out of our society. God is the one who sends deliverers. How do I know this? Because my favorite picture of this is found in Galatians 4. Verse 4. When we needed more than a Moses and more than a David and more than an Elijah, when we needed someone to save us from our sin problem, and want you to answer this, what could humanity do to make God send his son? What could they do? How could they manipulate the times and the circumstances and the cultures? And the answer is, we couldn't. But in the fullness of time, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, at the fullness of time. See, it's about God's timing that we are trusting. 
We are not letting the difficulties around us unsettle us. We're not looking for uh, hope in, in a political system or in a value system or in our own sacred culture that you and I have, these traditions that you and I consider to be so essential to the way of life as we know it. That's not what we're putting our trust in, but in God's timing. And he sends Moses when necessary and he sent Jesus right at the right time. See, this changes not, not, not just what we do, but it changes how we do it. I want to be part of a faith community that isn't just angry, that isn't just mad, that isn't just trying to fix it like everyone else in the world is trying to fix it, but one that trusts that not only is God right and not only is God in control, but it is his timing that we wait for. And we do so with hope and joy and optimism because God is faithful. Listen, circumstances will indeed change. I promise you they will. And we don't put our hope in the right kind of circumstances. I know that opinions will change. I've seen opinions change rather quickly. I've seen things that were, were, um, were appropriate are now not appropriate and things that were not appropriate are now totally appropriate. I know that. Obviously, culture changes. But I'm not asking you to put your hope in culture. I'm not asking you to put your faith in culture. I'm not asking you to put your hope in some kind of a cultural revolution. But in God and in his son, Jesus Christ. Because God is aware of what is going on around us. He is, there's an understatement, God is aware. He knows what's happening he knows, he knows exactly what is happening. And the second thing I want you to realize is that God has a plan. He's not quick, I gotta throw this together. As Ashley was saying about the coming of Jesus, it wasn't a, a plan B. It was like this was God's plan to send his son from the very beginning. It wasn't, a, Herod wasn't an accident. Everything is working according to God's sovereign plan. And, and so we look at this plan that God has and again, I'm not asking you to believe. Listen, I promise you it'll get better. Just hold on. Now here's my promise to you. Is that God will be faithful. He will be faithful to his plan. I, I don't know when. And, and I don't know exactly how God is going to work all this out. I just know that he will. And that is what I'm calling us to. That is what God is calling us to. Not a better time, but for us to be faithful and hold on to the truth that he will be faithful. 